I'll make the various introductions. Um, welcome to everybody, and thank you very much for coming to this. Um, I'm going to chair this event. My name is Mary Evans, and I'm a Lever Hume Emeritus Professor here at the LSE. Um, we have three people on the panel today. One of the people who was going to be able to come, I'm afraid, isn't able to, and that's Hilary Land from the University of Bristol. And I'll say a bit more about Hilary in just one moment. But first of all, I want to introduce the panel, who the people who are here today, um, from furthest away from me, Lisa McKenzie, who's a lecturer in sociology at Middlesex University, um, Derek King, who is a professorial fellow in the PSSRU Research Institute here at the LSE, and Kate, Kate Bell from the TUC, who is head of economic and social <coughs> affairs. It's a panel which I want to say, first of all, originated in what for me was a, a, a red mist moment when I read the programme for the beverage um, event which has been held here at the LSE all this week. And it struck me that there was nothing in this event about care and caring. And I finally thought this event has to actually have some, or this, this issue does have to have some presence. So that is why we're here this afternoon um, to talk about this question of who cares, who does the caring, and how we think about this issue of caring for other people um, in the UK in the 21st century. So what we're going to do this afternoon is follow a very... Um, conventional pattern for panel events. Each speaker is going to speak for about 10 minutes and then we'll open up the discussion to the audience uh, and we have to finish at a quarter past three. One final very ordinary housekeeping thing. Could I ask you to switch off your phones, please? Um, but we're going to speak and to hear from um, Derek, first of all, who's going to start off the discussion. So can I ask you to welcome Derek, please? Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Um, my name is Derek King. I'm, a, as Mary said, a researcher here at the London School of Economics in PSSRU, which is a personal social services research unit. Um, over the course of the last few years, I've worked with colleagues um, looking at the, at the issue of unpaid care and some of and, um, particularly focusing on the impact of caring on employment and also the issue of young carers and some of the impacts for them. Um, this has been work that has been funded by the NIHR School for Social Care Research. Um, in terms of the numbers of people providing unpaid care, the, the, the census is the most thorough um, source of data on this. Um, the census question reads, do you look after or give help or support to family members, friends, neighbors, or others because of either long-term physical or mental ill health, disability, or problems relating to old age. Based on data from the 2011 UK census, 10% of the population are, provide, are identified as providing unpaid care. 70% of these are providing care to someone over the age of 65. Um, we can also draw from the census information that tells us that 58% of unpaid carers in the UK are women, and the share of unpaid care provision is highest for those women aged 50 to 64. Women aged over 50 are likely to spend close to six years of their remaining life providing unpaid care. 
and we, can, we, we now know that 2.1% of under-18s are providing unpaid care, and this represents almost 180,000 young people. Uh, research done by Carers UK suggests that three in five care people will care at some point in their lives, so this is something that's quite um, um, common within uh, our, our society, but also that 50% of people say they don't know anyone who's an unpaid carer. So this suggests a, a degree of, of lack of information and, and sort of obscurity of people who are providing unpaid care within society. Um, this graph just shows you um, the breakdown. If we look at the top panel in terms of data from England, um, the distribution of provision of unpaid care by the number of hours, uh, sorry, by the age group of the carer. Um, and we can see again that uh, the, for women age 50 to 64 are carrying the highest burden in terms of unpaid care provision. Interestingly, over the age of 65, there are actually more men providing care than women, but this reflects the fact that women are living longer and most of these men will be providing spousal care. Um, this is a, a graph or a table that was presented by Saul Becker from the University of Birmingham at a Young Carers Conference last year, um, which identifies the number of hours of provision of care by young carers up to the age of 17. What's striking is that if we look at the graph, looking at those providing care for over 20 hours a week, there are close to 5,500 young people under the age of 10 providing unpaid care of that magnitude. Um, this graph reflects change over time in terms of the provision of the frequency of provision of informal care to an adult and shows that um, in greater proportion of people are now providing care almost continuously throughout the time uh, um, that care is required. So thinking about some of the impacts on unpaid <coughs> carers, these are just a sample of some of the research that has been done um, looking at some of these impacts in terms of health, mental health and other outcomes. 23% of carers providing 50 more hours of care describe their health as bad or very bad. Um, this compares to 4% of carers providing less than 20 hours a week and 5% of non-carers. 84% of carers report that their caring duties have negatively affected their health. 46% of unpaid carers report suffering from depression because of their caring role. And we can see data that shows that 38% of young carers report having a mental health condition. In terms of some of the financial implications for people who provide care, 53% of carers have borrowed money as a result of their caring role. 60% have used all of their savings to cover the cost of caring. Caring for 10 hours or more a week increases the likelihood of leaving employment. And unpaid care is looking after someone who does not receive paid services, that is, services provided by the council are more likely to leave work because of caring. In terms of implications for young people, we know that young carers are more likely to miss school, have low attainment, and higher dropout rates. So thinking about the, the provision of unpaid care in the context of current provision of services for people with disability, it's important to think about both the impact of caring and also the, the, the provision for entitlements for carers. In terms of the value of care provided by unpaid carers, this has been estimated at £57 billion per year by the Office of National Statistics in 2014. The public expenditure cost of carers leaving employment has been estimated at close to £3.3 billion a year by 
former colleague Linda Pickard. The CARE Act in 2014 does try to provide some securities for carers in, in that they have a right to a carer's assessment now and for, the, um, and for eligible needs to be met. There's a duty on local councils to provide information and advice to carers, and this includes carers who they may not be necessarily funding or carers of people who may not be receiving services. Support for carers can be met by providing care services for the cared-for person, um, but substantial ongoing cuts to adult social care funding in England since 20, 2009 2010 suggests that it's increasingly more likely that people are having to provide unpaid care for people in their families who may ha- or may not have, who have some level of need for um, disability provision of care. The carer allowance is currently set at £62.70 a week, which is not, we can agree, a, a large uh, amount of money. Um, and the recipient of that must be caring for 35 hours a week and earning less than £120 per week after deductions. So thinking about the future and looking ahead in terms of what lies in store for unpaid care, um, Colleagues have looked at uh, research that has done research that has looked at the potential for what happens when we have an increasing number of people of older age who may who are likely to have levels of disability. This may, if, lead to a care gap. Um, and this, in this research, there was an assumption that uh, the, the willingness to provide unpaid care amongst family members, particularly children, would be at the level that it is now. Um, and if that were the case, it's likely that the care gap would exist from 2017 onwards. And that would mean that there would be more people with disability needs who would not be eligible for services, but would also not have an unpaid care willing to provide those services. So there is a hope that um, provision of unpaid care and family members' willingness to provide unpaid care will increase in the future. Um, obviously, there's some uh, potential uh, caveats and things that we need to, to think about in terms of whether or not that may happen. And these include the level of female labor market participation, migration within country and also internationally in terms of having family members close by, the increase in the retirement age and what that ha- implications that has for the availability of people with time to provide unpaid care. The decrease gap in life expectancy between women and men means that there's more likely to be spousal care in the future but it could also be the case that we have spouses with both with disabilities looking after each other, which is clearly not um, a secure situation. We have more older people and people moving through the life course who are childless, and therefore they may not have family members to provide uh, unpaid care. And also looking at patterns of divorce and remarriage and widowhood and remarriage uh, may have some impacts in terms of future provision and willingness to provide unpaid care. I'll leave it Thank there. you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Um, Kate. Okay, thanks so much. Um, So, as Mary said, I'm Kate Bell. I'm Head of Economic and Social Affairs at the TUC. Um, And I'd just really like to say thanks for the invitation. Um, I also have a Social Policy Master's from the LSE, so I'm a big beverage fan. Um, You'll know that the TUC was really influential in um, calling for the establishment of um, the beverage report. Um, And I wanted to kind of take my remarks from kind of the perspective of the TUC now and think about how different ways that we think about caring might impact on the different ways we think about work in the future. Um, 
And I guess there's kind of a long-standing critique of the beverage report, which everybody here is probably pretty familiar with, that it assumed this female caregiver model and the male breadwinner model and was all designed around that. And we know that that didn't fit the reality of many working-class women's lives at the time the report was written, and it certainly doesn't fit the reality of many women's and men's lives now. But I do think in thinking about how we sort of redesign our social policy model in terms of thinking about um, how we have a kind of recognition of the universal necessity of caring, some of Beveridge's framework is actually quite helpful for us to think about. So, as you probably know, there were kind of two bits of what, how Beveridge said we're going to provide a welfare state in the future. So, we're going to have financial support for interruption of earnings power. So, that's if you become unemployed and very much on a male model. If you become unemployed, if you become sick or you retire and can no longer work, the state should basically be helping you to save for those possibilities and redistribute some of those costs. On the other hand, he, of course, had these two kind of fundamental assumptions about what the state was going to be doing at the same time. So whether that was um, providing full employment through basically managing the economy, through demand management, or through managing the costs of sickness and health through the introduction of the NHS. Outside that kind of interruptions of earnings power things, there was going to be some things that the state was collectively doing in order to make, make sure that people were not facing poverty and hardship. And I think it's quite interesting to think on which side of those two kind of different ways of providing support we put the responsibility to provide care. And I think they have quite different implications for how we think about work as well. Um, so one kind of way to think about that is to say that actually we now have many women working. Um, we know that caring is part of that interruption of earnings power, basically. So to think about the responsibility to care, whether that's for children or for elderly parents or perhaps for a spouse or a sick relative, is actually a normal interruption of earnings power. And what we need to do is to design our system of financial support for when you're not doing that and our system of working life in order to accommodate that. So you can see we already have some bits of the system that do that. We have paid maternity pay. We have paid some paid paternity pay, although significantly less. We have a ridiculously low carer's allowance. So we have some parts of this model which allow us to think about that. And we could have an approach to the responsibility to provide care, which says, OK, we need to equalise paternity pay to take away the gendered implications of this model. We need to have a much higher level of carer's allowance. Maybe we need to have some other forms of allowance for caring for a sick relative. And also we need to fundamentally redesign the workplace. So that would mean thinking about our careers in a different way, recognising that they're likely to be interrupted by periods of caregiving. It might mean thinking about the way we actually work. Do we all work full time? In Germany, very interestingly, the Metal Workers Union has just negotiated a 28 hours working week at the same time as negotiating a pay rise, which is pretty amazing. And if, of course, you think that um, we are going to be faced with a threat of automation and fewer jobs, and I'm pretty agnostic on that question, but you might think, actually, this is the way we're going. What we need to be doing is to redesign our labour market so that it recognises that everybody cares. Then, of course, you've got a whole set of questions within that which say, well, how do we make sure that that's not an exclusively female problem? How do we deal with the kind of gendered assumptions about who provides that care? But that's kind of one model where you see caring kind of as something that's integrated with your working life and as an interruption of earnings power fundamentally. I think the other model, however, which does look quite different, is where we say, actually, 
the assumption that the state will help deal with care should be one of our fundamental assumptions about what kind of society we have and that we should have some kind of collective provision of those care needs and some kind of collective sharing of that risk. Um, and we could say, you know, very much like the National Health Service, we actually have a national care service. And I guess it's interesting to think about whether we think of the national care service as something that integrates childcare and elderly care. And you see some of those really nice experiments. There's a place in London which is a um, caring for older people and is also open to fresh on their grounds. So rather than thinking about this as a kind of part of the health service, do we actually think of caring as something quite different? But I think it's quite interesting to think about how this has much less radical implications for how the way we actually organise our working lives. We've basically said, rather than this kind of staying within the family, this being about individual responsibilities, this is something we've put as kind of a collective form of provision. Now, the people, of course, who this would have radical implications for, if we did it right, would be the care workforce. And we know at the moment we have a heavily gendered care workforce and a workforce that's treated pretty terribly. So I think 80% of childcare workers are um, women and 80% of social care workers are women as well. And that has real implications for the way that work is valued and the way it's treated. And I think it's interesting to see how, as the state has moved away from the provision of care, we've seen a 10%, nearly a 10% drop in the level of social spending on... Um, <coughs> Uh, social care from local authorities driven by central government cuts since 2010 where that risk has been moved on so partly it's been moved on to individuals in the form of unmet care needs but it's also been moved on to that workforce we've seen their pay driven down we've seen an increasing proliferation of zero hours contracts and we've also seen that care workforce basically having to do the kind of emotional labour of having to realise that they're not doing, <coughs> not providing sufficient quality of care. So a recent survey from Unison found that 80% um, of workers said their schedule was arranged in such a way so that they had to rush their work or leave early from their care visits. And you think about how that makes them feel about their job, not to mention how that makes the people who are caring feel. So we've kind of got a semi-collectivisation of this risk here, and then we've shifted it, but because we're not funding it properly, we've shifted a large proportion of that risk onto the workforce, and again, that's a predominantly female workforce. Now, we all know that if we were going to collectively provide care to a standard which we might think was acceptable, that would require us to pay for it. But I think it is interesting, again, to have some international comparisons here and recognise that the UK really doesn't do this very well. We spend less than 1% of our GDP on social care. Um, in New Zealand, Canada, Belgium and France, it's over 1.1% and it's over 2% in the Netherlands and Denmark. Um, so I'm kind of going to leave it there, but I just wanted to set out those kind of two quite different models. And I think it is quite interesting for me, anyway, as I kind of, as I said, someone who's studied beverage at various different points, to think... Of course, this was the massive lacuna in the report to think about, um, you know, what it, who is doing care, that it's not all done within the home by women who don't have another job. But I do think that framework which he set out of thinking, do we meet our needs by a kind of individual responsibility where we spread the costs over our life, we think about it as something we integrate with our work, or do we effectively socialise those needs and provide for them collectively is still quite a helpful framework for us to think about. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much. I'm just going to interrupt here by actually speaking for Hilary Land at this point, just, and I'll just be a couple of minutes, because although Hilary, as I said at the beginning, can't be here this <coughs> afternoon, 
Um, there are, I think, uh, three things which I wanted to say, and Hilary has asked me to pass on to the audience. First of all, I wanted to acknowledge the part that Hilary Land played in the 1970s and the 1980s in getting care work recognised as something which actually was part of the working lives of people generally in the UK. And it was through that work that, in point of fact, care work, although it's now paid at a very, very low level, as Derek and, uh, and, uh, has said, it was nevertheless acknowledged that that work, caring, constituted work. And I think that that was actually something that we need to very much recognise in terms of the group of people, of whom Hillary was one, um, who worked for that recognition um, in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The second thing that I wanted to say is that um, Hilary Land, together with um, Isabel Quilter, published recently uh, a report which was put together under the organisation of the Women's Budget Group, which was actually called Just Care. And if anybody actually wants to look that up, you can just go to the website for the Women's Budget Group and find it, because it does provide an enormous amount of information about one of the themes in particular which has already been touched upon, which is that of the gendered nature of caring. The third thing which Hilary, I know, was really eager for me to actually pass on to the audience, and perhaps we'll also touch on this more generally, is the disappearance of spaces in the geography of our social lives for caring. The Shore Start Centres, the free community space, the parks, the playgrounds, the various places in which people can come together actually in order to do the work of caring. So that, for example, if you have young children, there is somewhere to go with them, which doesn't involve spending money. If you have people who you need to, who have physical needs of one kind or another, you go to a place where that physical space is actually accessible. So the argument that I wanted to put very much um, through the the. The, the ideas of Hillary, is this idea of extending, thinking about the whole geography of care, the spatial organisation in which it's possible for care to take place. So, as I say, I'm speaking, um, I'm speaking the ideas of Hillary Land, and I hope you'll forgive that interruption in the order, but I will now turn to, to Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to speak to that. Excellent. <laughs> Can I take your arm? It's not there. Lovely, it's gone dark. <laughs> <laughs> really bright. Thank you for uh, inviting me here today, um, particularly around the issue around caring, because I never, I never really get a chance to speak about caring. Um, I talk a lot about women, I talk a lot about class, 
Um, but people never really recognise that the work that I do it really is about women caring for each other, for communities, but also for their families as well. So I'm really glad that Mary recognised that even though I do work on working-class women, it is actually about caring. Um, so thank you for that. So the question I really want to ask today is... So we've talked a lot really about the structure and the, the sort of policy ways of caring or the, the notion of caring, but what I want to ask is who cares about working-class women? And both speakers today um, have recognised that it's actually women that are doing, still doing the largest amount of caring, and actually it's working-class women who are still doing a much larger part of all of that caring. So the women that are working, in, and actually some of the women who, are, who the stories I'm going to tell you about, work in caring. Um, this young woman here works in adult social care. Um, so it's quite interesting, really, that you've spoken to, to my presentation without hearing it. So what I want to do, really, today is to, talk, is to ask that question, who cares about working-class women? How do they care? And actually, do we care about them? Also, their children as well. And when I mean children, I'm, I'm sort of speaking about their wider families. Um, I suppose I'll start with where I got my ideas from and my, uh, and my research from. Um, I did a PhD in Nottingham. I call myself a working-class academic. I come from a council estate, um, and I was a mother at 19. And so I know a lot about caring. Um, and so when I did my PhD, it was about mothers that lived on a council estate in Nottingham. Since that time, and since I finished my PhD, uh, and I came to London to come here to work at the LSE, um, my research while I've been in London has been with young women who are fighting in the housing crisis for somewhere to live. Um, and then in the last year, I've done some new research with the Inequalities Institute here, which is based with women who are back in the deindustrialized communities in the north um, and how their lives have changed again. So what I'm going to do today really is bring all this into this idea of caring and start to question about who cares through really a 15-year um, project of research that I've done. So this is one of the women that I work with in St Anne's in Nottingham. Uh, she's a young woman, and uh, she actually she worked in adult care. Um, she she doesn't anymore. This is about ten years ago. Um, but I'm going to continue with these stories. So in order to sort of set the scene in what I do, because I want you to understand, because when we're talking about caring and who cares and, you know, why do we, do we care about working-class women and, and actually why does it even matter? You know, and, and the beverage report, you know, why should we be thinking about the beverage report and how does this matter to people's lives? What I want you to do really is to start to think about the context that, of the people that I'm introducing to you. So I'm an ethnographer. That means that um, I am... <coughs> in the research field. Um, I'm part of the research, and when I do research, I'm very much immersed in that research field. So what I'm going to do now, really, is introduce you to my ethnography, and I'm going to ask you to do some ethnography as well. 
So this is a photograph from my ethnographic research. I take lots of photographs, but I also ask my respondents to take photographs as well. Not because I'm a photographer or even interested in photography. It's just that capturing a second in someone's life, I think is really important when they tell me their stories. So I'd like to, you to just sort of have a look at this photograph. This was taken by a respondent in my research in Nottingham about 10 years ago. Um, so I'd just like to ask you, what can you see? It's not a trick question, shout it out. <laughs> what can you see? Bars. Bars, yes, very good, well spotted. Anything else? <laughs> Trees, well spotted, anything else? Buildings. Well, what you can see, it's not difficult, it's, it's a cityscape. It's the landscape of the city of Nottingham. That's all it is. Um, but it puts in context the people that I am talking about and how they see their world. And actually the way that we see our world is really important to people's experiences. But even more important when we're at places like this, talking about big things like the beverage report, because then we can start to ask whose voices are not included, whose voices doesn't get heard. Um, so what you're looking at now is you're looking at the St Anne's Council Estate, which is where I live for 22 years um, and where I did my research for my PhD. You're also sat in the same position as my respondents when they took this photograph. And so you probably think, well, so what? What does that matter? It doesn't matter, really. But what you can see here is the way that the group of respondents see their lives every single day. So this is how they see the, the city of Nottingham. Um, and as you were quite right, you said it's through bars. And again, you might think, well, so what? What does that matter? Well, I can sort of take you a bit further into this ethnographic research. My respondents were in their first week at school, so they were five years old. And you're sat in the playground of their school. And this is how they see their day, every day. This is how they see the city of Nottingham. And what I asked them is, um, what do we like about our city? Because this is a community that other people think are... Is, it's a stigmatised community, it's where the drugs are, it's where the single mums are, it's where the gangs are. Um, and in the city of Nottingham, it's the place where the University of Nottingham tells their students not to go. Which was ironic for me, because when I was a unit student at the University of Nottingham, that's where I lived. Um, so... What I was asking my respondents is, well, what do we like about this city? What's good about it? And they said, well, we like town because there's McDonald's in town and there's a cinema in town. And we took photographs of the things that we liked. So it's really important that we get this context right. So the children in St Anne see their world every day through bars. I didn't know these bars was there, despite the fact of living on this estate for 20-odd years. And this was the school that my son went to. Um, and it wasn't until I got home and looked at this photograph that I actually saw the bars. And I've never worked... And these bars are around all the schools and all the public buildings on the council estate where I lived. And when I saw this for the first time, despite living there, I thought, I wonder if there's any other bars. And what I did is I went around the estate and there was bars and locks and gates everywhere. 
And then as I started to talk to people, other people who lived in other council estates, I asked them as well. And they said, yeah, we've got bars and locks and gates. And I never really knew why, whether, who it, those bars and locks and gates were for, whether to keep us in or to keep others out, I still don't know. But the context here is important. So this is one of the women that was part of my research. Her name is Tina. Um, Tina works in the community centre in the middle of the council estate, um, and she's a volunteer. And this is her doing what she does best. She loves washing up. She, she washed the cups. We had a little calf in the community centre. She did all the washing up. She gave people cups of tea, and she just chattered. Um, she was a really important member of the community because in the community centre, um, it was a place where women who dropped their kids off from school would come and have a cup of tea. It's also where a lot of the elderly came and just sat down. And Tina was really important to that. She was integral because she was a face that you saw every day. And she'd done this for seven years. She'd got two small children of her own and she lived minutes away from the community centre. Now, Tina and the other mothers cared deeply about their community, very deeply, so much that they wanted to give their labour for free because they wanted to care about their community. And actually, the community cared about them back. She'd done this for seven years, but when her eldest child got to five, um, no, her youngest child got to five in 2013, she was called into the benefits agency because the benefits had just changed. Um, and they, they said to her, your youngest child is five now, you need to go to work. And they actually said, and I went with her, because she was very worried about this, and they said, you know, don't you want to give back to society because you've taken? And she told them what she did, and she told them that she was a volunteer and she did this volunteering at the community centre. And they said, oh, that's brilliant, but you don't get paid for it. And you're on housing benefit and you get social security, and you get free health care, and your kids are getting schooling. So don't you want to give something back to society? And she said, yeah, of course I do. And she was trying to be helpful. So she said, they said to her, well, would you like, you know, let's, let's help you get a job. We're going to help you get a job. Um, and she did want to work, but she wanted to work in the community, because she wanted to make the community better and she wanted the community, she wanted to be part, you know, she wanted to stay where she lived. That was her ambition. That was her aspiration to have the place where her children and her mother and her grandmother and her great-grandmother and her grandmother's grandmother, she wanted to make that a better place for everybody. And that for her was an aspiration. So the benefits woman agency, the woman said to her, well, we can't give you, and now I'm paraphrasing and sort of putting a bit of artistic license into this, but it's a good story. So, um, so the benefits woman said, yes, but we can't give you a job in the community because we've just made all those jobs redundant because of the cuts. Would you like to work in a cheese factory? So she, she said, yeah, because she knew that she'd be sanctioned if she didn't. So she went to work in the cheese factory and she left her kids at half past six every morning to get on a bus to work six miles away in Derbyshire in the cheese packing factory. Um, and she lasted three months and she ended up quite ill. Uh, and her benefits were sanctioned and her and her th two children lived on £50 a week for about three months. 
and food banks, don't forget those. Um, and so what I'm doing now is, really, I'm, I'm asking you again, who cares about the women that care? I've got one last thing to show you. So it's not just in Nottingham. The women that care are all over the country. These are women in London who have been fighting and campaigning to save the hostel where they lived. Not the home, the hostel, because they were homeless. And actually their hostel was going to be taken away from them. So they, fought, so they formed a campaign to try and save the hostel. They lost, and none of them live in London now. And the last thing, really, I just want to sort of bring this right up to where I am now with the research... Um, and that's with going back to these women uh, in 2016 and talking to them about the EU referendum. And the women here um, saw very little hope being in or out of the EU. They didn't see why it was important to them, although they did want to vote and make their voices heard. And the question that I asked right at the end of all my interviews was, do you think things will get better for you if we leave the EU? And their response was, I can't see that, but no, but they just couldn't stand it being the same. And so I'm going to leave that here now and then ask you again, who cares about working class women? Thank you. Okay, thank you all very much indeed. Um, could I now ask you to put your questions or your comments? Um, perhaps we'll take these um, three at a time and um, there'll be an opportunity, I hope, for everybody to um, make your, your voices heard. So um, would you like to start, please? There are roving mics, I see. So, yeah, okay, one... It's, it's kind of like a question, but it's also like a reminder. I was really interested in the discussion about whether um, we feel like it should be more important to invest in making, like, enabling people to provide care for their um, like partners, families, and people that are close to them, or whether we think it's more important to invest, or whether some kind of system that enables us to make that something we can support as if it is a job intimately, um, rather than people almost like yeah not being able to provide care or re like resenting the fact that they have to provide care because they can't still have a job which one uh, yeah that discussion just really interested me i'd quite like to talk about that okay thank you is there another one just to go with that yeah here please um i think you've been talking a little bit about how care is gendered but so i study gender and policy in my master's program here so we also talk a lot about how care is also racialized and how global care chains or like migration patterns are taking place and so when the UK is leaving the EU what will happen to all these caring migrants coming from Eastern Europe right um, okay um, let me start Kate would you like to start here so I really just responding to your question and listening to Lisa I was really reminded of um, I used to work for a charity called Gingerbread which supports single parents we used to talk to Lots of single parents who would say, 
was a time, and I went there kind of through the sort of naughty. So it was a time when things were getting better for those women. People were investing in Shorestar, and they'd massively whacked up the rate of tax credit. So there was some more support for them. But you talk to lots of those women, and they say, "Why are they? Why do they want me to go out to work and someone else to look after my children? This is completely circular and pointless, basically." And I think it is a, re- but I think it's genuinely a difficult dilemma. And I think you know, I didn't really kind of come down on either side of my should we be helping more people to get support for caring for their own families, or should we be making a collective provision? And I think it's because it's, I think it's really hard. And obviously, we want. The ideal is that we have choice, basically, and you know we look at some of our nice kind of Scandinavian welfare models, and you've got like long, you know, long periods of out of work, high benefit provision, and then you've got high levels of childcare, and you have you know mildly less gendered caring patterns. And but I think, I think it's I think we have to keep coming back to. I think we have to keep thinking about it. And as Lisa says, talking to the people who are mostly trying to, you know who we mostly think are going to be affected by that, rather than saying, well, you know, my model of feminism basically says that women should be working and care should be a social system, and Mm. my model of feminism says, actually, I think that, you know, caring is the most valuable work you can do, and why are we not rewarding the people who do it? Like, I think they are real dilemmas. We can't just pick one and decide to go for it, and the best way to resolve them is to actually talk to the people who are most likely to be affected by the policy. So that's a bit of a non-answer, but... It's because I think it's a really hard question, basically. Um, and I, I don't... The question about um, uh, definitely kind of racialised and kind of sort of nationality-based models of caring, we know that our care sector at the moment is massively dependent on migration, and I don't know what is going to happen when, you know, when we no longer have that source of low-paid labour in order to rely on, but I think it's a good question. Okay, Derek, Lisa, did either of you want to? No, do you want to go for? I guess on the the question with regards to migration, um, I think, um, as Lisa pointed out, and as Kate has mentioned, I mean, I think there is a big issue in terms of um, the labour force within the care sector, which is predominantly um, staffed by um, women with lower socioeconomic needs or lower socioeconomic status, and also women from foreign countries, I think it's important to think also about um, sort of the implications for migrants who may be leaving family members in other parts of the world and and sort of the impacts on those families Mm -hmm. in terms of supporting um, their elderly and and disabled uh, family members. Um, But as Kate says, there's there's no, um, you know, immediate solution, no obvious solution. So it's, it's, um, it's, 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 but it's something that we need to speak about. I think for me, this 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 is obviously it's, this is a class issue for me um, because migrant women who are coming here to care are working class women, um, and the fact that they leave family members behind to come and care for our family members, you know, it, it, that's about the sort of global class system, and I think who's experiences and I think for me this is a question of value so whose experiences and lives are valued and whose isn't um, and I think this is the problem with uh, this is one of the issues that we that we have with modern feminism actually and I find myself becoming less of a feminist actually um, more of these more of these issues that I end up arguing with people about because it's the way that 
the, a dominant voice in feminism becomes heard and other voices get drowned out. And I found myself a couple of weeks ago when we were celebrating the 100 years of uh, the suffragettes thinking, God, I could imagine what it would have been like to be a working-class woman at that point when, you know, you were trying to not... for your children to not... well, for your children to eat and somebody was going on about having been represented in Parliament. Um, and so, for me, it is a question of value, who becomes values, whose voices, whose experiences and whose voices are dominant. And the women in my research, their voices are never dominant at all, ever. Um, and one of the things that they want to do is just live in their communities and care about their communities because their communities don't care about them. But this doesn't seem to be possible because their experiences and lives are just not valued. Do you want to say something? I just think it, I think it's so. I don't know. It's really thought-provoking your presentation, which made me want to say lots of things in response. But I think the intersection of class and gender is so interesting because if you think about, you know, often we think of kind of the desire to work as a middle-class issue. But it's always been working-class women throughout, you know, who have been more likely to work. Yeah. And so issues around the provision of childcare. <coughs> and support for that have been more important to working-class women traditionally. So there's that kind of complexity. And then obviously coming from the trade union movement, like the trade union movement has always sought to represent the voices of working-class people and has been pretty terrible. You know, it's much better now. We have a female general secretary, we have a, you know, job shares at our highest level, we know we're more unionised in the public sector, and a massive shift in the movement about how the voices of kind of women have come to the fore. But, you know, the... Trade union movement was initially against the idea of child benefit because they thought it would diminish the male weekly wage. And that mm. kind of very sort of, you know, that was a kind of class-based solidarity and it really, you know, fought against what was probably a kind of middle-class women's campaign yeah. for recognition and for women to have their own incomes. Yeah. And thinking about how those two things cross over is really... I think it's hard as well as really important. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be... I think it is difficult, and we should never, ever, ever stop thinking that this yeah. is not difficult because, you know, the, 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 the celebration of the suffragettes actually made me want to be sick. <laughs> it really did. It actually really did. Um, and I just thought, why... How has this debate become so singular... You know, equality for women, yet no equality between women. And I think, and I think you raised a really good question when you talked about sort of the global women's experiences. Uh, my mother-in-law um, came from Jamaica in 1960, 1960 and left her two children in Jamaica thinking that she could save up to bring them over and, you know, she never did. But, you know, she worked in, um, in, uh, the, in the NHS, caring for the elderly for her whole life. And I think, you know, we, we, aren't, we, aren't, we aren't raising these very difficult questions enough, really. OK. Are there, any, are there other questions? Are there, are there, OK, one, and is there somebody else as well at the same time? Not at the same time, obviously, but... <laughs> yeah, OK. One there and then one over there. Thank you. Well, there's, yeah. there's another type of um, caring. 
uh, where you don't have to be um, working class, you're not, you may be middle class, where you have to be um, educated, where you have to actually keep up with all uh, legislation and every piece of new legislation that might uh, come up, like DOLS uh, 2009, um, which is uh, closely connected uh, to advocacy. So if you care for someone, um, especially in, mental health, um, uh, sec in the mental health sector, um, you also need to be their best uh, advocate, yeah. which is not uh, readily recognized if it comes uh, from the family. Ideally, it should be the psychiatrist. Practically, they're not. Okay. So you need to actually, um, you know, you, you may be a full-time um, um, carer. You may have to abandon your own career, your own job, even if they are in a care home. And this has not been recognized. Okay. Thank it's you. not acknowledged. Okay, thank you. We'll come back to that. There was somebody there. Hello. Hi, I'm Lara. Um, I am a part-time carer. I'm also a social housing tenant um, and a disabled person. So um, I'm very new to beverage. I've only just discovered him, so that's been good. Um, I've really enjoyed this today because... Um, this particular, your particular presentation, who cares about working class women? Because I was slightly concerned yesterday sitting in the Grenfell discussion. I was hoping someone was going to ask the question, and I, I didn't because I thought somebody else might. But, you know, it was a panel of experts. Thankfully, there was uh, one academic who's from social housing background, but there was no community yeah. member. There was no invited yeah. Um, yeah. activist or spokesperson for yeah. Grenfell, and that has really shocked me. Um, I'm just bringing it up yeah. now in relation to what you're saying about yeah. no voice, and particularly because the Grenfell thing is about them not having a voice. Um, yeah. I just thought I would bring this up now as to why yeah. some of the talks in this festival don't seem to be putting people with lived experience onto the panels with the academics. Thanks. Thank you very much. Could you say something on that? Uh, and there was somebody at the front, I think. Yes, thank you. Would you like to start? Hello. I found it very interesting um, hearing your um, Who Cares um, talk. Interestingly, in Scotland... There have been tens of thousands equal pay cases by carers, women carers, in local councils for yeah. decades, usually, unfortunately, against labour councils, yeah. who have been paid a fraction of the male wage for decades. And it went to, it's gone to court, and they've won the cases finally. But I found it fascinating that in court, as an argument of law, they used that the reason they paid women less than... The, female carers less than male gardeners was because caring wasn't a skill yes and it yeah. wasn't as skillful as gardening so i was wondering bin men as well isn't it it's the uh -huh. bin men as well yeah, yeah the bin men anything that was seen as a skill it, anything it had to do with a gendered understanding of what caring is it, it turned out it wasn't a skill so i was wondering if any of you had something to say on how do we demonstrate to the policymakers, but also the politicians who allowed this to happen for decades that the caring is a skill and it should be valued as such. Thank you. 
Eric, you want to start responding? Um, yes, some interesting questions. Um, with regards to advocacy, I mean, I think that in a number of the uh, studies that we've worked on um, where we have spoken to, to carers, um, they do highlight um, the importance of, of the role and the amount of time that they spend doing those types of tasks. Um, I think that they are, um, there's a great awareness, particularly in, 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 in sort of it, um, carers of people with dementia and people with mental health issues, as you say, where there is that need for um, caring that goes beyond just the physical demands of the, of the, the person with, with, who may have care needs. Um, so, yes, I think advocacy is, is, is very important. Um, and the, to the extent to which um, the things like the, the CARE Act, which now allow for more information to be provided to carers, um, over and above any sort of financial support, I think is helpful. And also, obviously, we have a number of um, uh, volunteer organizations, Carers UK, Carers Trust, which are trying to, to support carers in their caring roles, particularly in, in, in the areas of advocacy. Um, with regards to um, the involvement of, of people with lived experiences, I think I clearly agree with you. And, and again, in, in, in the research that we do, it's, it's, it's become very much a priority um, for us to include um, people with lived experiences in advisory groups and, and, and sort of directing the questions that we ask and, and, and some of the, the issues that we look at in research. Um, unfortunately, as you say, it's not been part of this festival, but, but it's certainly something that should be fed back to the organizers. Um, and I suppose with your question, I think probably Kate and Lisa probably better answer that. Sure. Um, I guess just two things to say. And one, I think it's really important what you say and the whole question of who is seen as an expert. Yeah. Um, is really, really important. And the other thing I just made me prompt was I was thinking on my way here about, you know, how ranty should I be, basically? But one of the things I feel sort of very angry about at the moment is the level of... And it relates to this discussion, is the level of cuts which are going on to Social Security, whether that's the benefit cut cap which has restricted the total amount of money people can receive um, if they're living um, in terms of housing benefit and other benefits, or huge cuts to... Um, uh, universal credit, which was tax credits, basically. And of course, those are cuts which are massively going to disproportionately affect working class women with children. Um, and I think there is something, it's both about who gets to, your question about who gets to speak in political debates, which means that those are kind of, sort of, those are being allowed to happen somehow. Um, and they really speak to the, you know, the question of whose voice is heard, and they kind of come at this kind of, you know, the most kind of hated figure in the British media is a working-class woman with children who isn't working. Yeah. You know, and it comes at that real and that, intersection, that, and that basically, was, and, and that, that was, those cuts hit. Yeah, and um, that was really my question about who cares, because in this room today we can all care, yeah. because we've brought this, but actually when you leave this room, and I think it what goes what you said actually uh, a year and a half ago I did a, I did a, a festival here at the LSE um, and it was full of grassroots in fact the only people we invited were grassroots people and we had a group of carer, young carers from Dagenham uh, Barking and Dagenham Young Carers Group um, and it was the first time they'd ever been into central London and we paid for them to come here and they came to the LSE and they did a talk and they taught, 
they, they were teaching about what it was like to be a young carer. Um, <coughs> and nobody who worked here came to see their talk. <laughs> that's, that's the truth. Um, people from outside came to see the, them, but actually nobody from here. But they still loved it anyway. They had a good time. They had a good day. <laughs> Can I just one more thing about your case about equal pay? And it sort of, it really links closely. And I should say we're really proud that, you know, it's Unison who's taken those equal pay cases and supported those women because... And, you know, I would say this, but, you know, the trade union movement is about listening to voices and it's a democratic movement, so we speak on things which our members have told us, basically, and that's, you know, one of the good things about working for it. But your point about kind of women's work not being... Con- and care work not being considered expert, I was at an, I went to this very kind of policy-wonky seminar which is about um, why do we have inequality? And the guy who was presenting said, well, you know, it's because we've rewarded talent, basically... You know, it's because the rewards to talent have increased. And so people with, you know, talented skills, um, like banking, you know, whether it's sport or banking, I've seen. And it was amazing. And lots of people and lots of men, actually, lots of men in the room challenged him and said, what about care workers? They're the most, you know, it's the hardest thing you can possibly do is care for an elderly person, have the kind of patience, you know, variety of skills you need to do that. But it was amazing. I just, it was amazing. To, and the guy who was presenting kind of resisted it and said, well, you know, it's not quite the same as being, you know, a hedge fund manager. But, uh, and, you know, it was really, it was, you know, rewarding to me on the one hand that, you know, it was the men in the room who were prepared to challenge that, mm-hmm. prepared to take on the challenge. But it was an amazing example of just how, you know, it was a kind of lefty policy seminar <laughs> where talking about inequality... Doesn't surprise me, actually. ..how far people were prepared to go and how far, you know, we still need to make those arguments about can this I, is expert and important, and I will always stop ranting. Can I just, can <laughs> I just throw one more bomb? Can I just throw one more bomb in there? That actually the trade unions are not democratic at all. Um, because the women in my study would give no vote or no say in the, the unions because they're not working and I think that is the problem it's trying to value these things that cannot be that you cannot value them and should not value them so you know not on not on sort of a wage or on money because you know Tina who, who is a, a woman in my story she was getting housing benefit and uh, and and uh, social security, I don't know what it's called now. Uh, what's it called now? Um, and so she was getting... Income support, probably. Income support, yeah. I used to call it social security. She was getting housing benefit and income support. And that used to amount to about 110 quid a week for her and her two kids. But she used to put in a 20-hour shift in the community centre and was vital for that community. I just don't know why she couldn't, you know, why, why, was, why could she just not carry on getting... She didn't want any more. She'd got a house that she had a, a long-term tenancy and she could live in it forever. <coughs> Her kids were happy. She, did, she actually didn't want anything else. So I think, we've, that, you yeah. know, it's that, that what do we value and then how do we value it? And that's where I would say the trade unions are absolutely missing on this. 
And can I, I, I just want to come in, and I'm, I'm, I'm abusing the privileges of Go the on, chair. So, but it, it actually relates to beverage. Now, I have had to look up more times than I care to remember the date of the publication of the beverage report, which is November 1942. I think this is so extraordinary that in the middle of the Second World War, this is before the defeat of the German armies at Stalingrad, people sat down in this country and thought about the post-war world. I really do think it's just as such a landmark to the public imagination that we really need to get hold of this. I mean, we take it for granted, but we very seldom think about what was going on around everybody in this country at that time and indeed across Europe. The point of this remark is that the public imagination, and certainly it was the TUC that took this idea to the coalition government in, in the, or the wartime coalition and said, let's do something about this. What is it about the public imagination in 2017 that has such difficulty in imagining the work of care? I mean, it just seems to me, in terms of what you were saying about these events that brought together you know, entrepreneurs and so on and so forth, and the social value which is being valued in those contexts is precisely that of the entrepreneurial spirit, the, the person who is creative, etc., etc. And yet, is there something about the way in which we imagine the kinds of work that people are doing in, in the country which has somehow failed to actually take notice of this unpaid work? I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about Hillary Land initially, of actually trying to put this idea onto the public imagination. Why has this become so difficult? And as I say, in terms of you know, the contrast between... Um, February 2018 and November 1942. I mean, I always find this an absolutely incredible difference in terms of just of what, of what we can imagine. And so that's what I wanted to say here. And I think I've now got the date of the publication of Beverage in my head, so I'm not going to have to look it up again. But it's taken a lot of years to get that publication there because a lot of the time it was just unbelievable um, to think that at that particular point, um, this idea about remaking welfare could actually have this kind of public place. And people queuing around the block to actually buy this report when it was published. So I'm sorry to interrupt. That was mine. You mentioned the word rant, but that was mine. Anyway, um, more questions, please. The last group of questions before we have to stop. One here, one there. Another, yeah. Okay. I don't know if it's a question or it's more of an observation, but I work for the NHS and um, it really strikes me that there's such broad public support for the NHS, even when you speak to people who are very wealthy, very middle class. The people are so attached to it. I think, broadly speaking, the career development and support is pretty good. But on the other side, if you think about social care, you think about how unfair it is. If you get cancer, you get amazing treatment for the NHS. But if you have dementia that, you know, you're screwed, basically. And there isn't... People will march to protect the NHS against cuts. Thousands of people from all backgrounds, but you just don't have... People don't even understand what the social care, you know, system is. And so I'm really interested in the idea of a national care service because, like you say, it, that idea hasn't taken off at all in the public imagination. 
Yeah, hi there. Um, I think it was really fascinating what you said about equality for women, not equality between women. Um, a lot of times, like with these kind of big uh, like movements and such, the way that it's conducted in this manner can become kind of like facile overall. So how do you like inject that discussion into such a big movement of feminism without it being undermining it or anything, or um, and like still having it in objective way that is beneficial for everyone? Um, I just wanted to add something because uh, talking about mm. not valuing so-called women's work, which is essentially what care mm. work is, is considered to be still mm. in our macho mm. British culture. Um, yeah. I did get to go to Norway yeah. as part of Erasmus studies for fine art. And in the yeah. academy there, the art academy, yeah. there were about uh, 15 students because very small yeah. student numbers compared to us and about nine of them were pregnant (laughs) and i kid you not so imagine a britain where it was even feasible to think that you could be pregnant or have a child and do an ma because they were going to be paid handsomely for the work of childcare, which is a job and that's the unfortunate thing we've not got to the stage where it's considered a job so until we get there, you know, this is, this is the state of play, isn't it? Thank you. Okay. Can I just sort of... I'll just throw a few things in there. So the way that the women... So this is from the women who I work with. So they would always have more in common with working-class men who they live with every day than other women, than middle-class women. They, they would have no understanding of this debate in here. They just wouldn't, they wouldn't know why we would be doing it. Couldn't we do something better and interesting? <laughs> um, and they're actually probably right. But, so, so regarding men, it, it, you know, within working-class women's groups, it's not an anti-man thing at all. And actually, most of this work that women do, men are always involved with it anyway. Um, care, I think, here is too narrow. We think about it too narrow. So you're talking about sort of dementia. Well, I also talk about housing, because care is also about housing as well. Because if you have got nowhere to live... We're wasting, you know, don't spend any money on the NHS, it's pointless. You know, why have we got a free education system when we don't have a table for a kid to do their own work on? You know, these are the things. So care needs to be much, much broader. And then adding into your point as well, thank you for that, um, because regarding education, again, which I see as part of care, you know, that education should be lifelong, for anybody, I didn't go to university till I was 31. My son was 11 then. Um, but in the last five years, all adult education has been cut. There is no money for adult education. So the things that we used to have, access courses, um, they've, they've stopped. So the voices cannot come through anymore. They have been stopped. Um. 
I really agree about your adult education points in particular. Um, two things to kind of try and make us feel slightly more optimistic. And the first one, you're going to think I'm mad when I say this. So in the run-up to the 2017 election, you might remember there was a big kind of political row where Theresa May said, we're going to make you pay for your own care by selling your, basically by using the assets of your house. Now, that completely went away. It was obviously <coughs> a pretty silly idea. But maybe for the first time in quite a long time, the issue of caring for elderly relatives was part of the political debate and was recognised and was on the table. So, uh, you know, it didn't go anywhere, nothing happened, but I think it had started, to your point about a kind of national care service, a tiny little window of space had opened up in which actually we were able to talk about that. Um, and then my other point um, is about Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey and thinking about um, kind of big kind of feminist movements and how we make sure they kind of actually haven't just kind of totally elided class and just kind of pushed it out of the way. Um, and there's obviously a huge amount of focus on sexual harassment at the moment. And we know from research that the TUC has done is you're most likely to be sexually harassed if you're in a basically a low paid job. Um, it's most likely to happen if you're in retail, hospitality, and indeed care as well. They are kind of working-class jobs. And actually, Oprah Winfrey's speech at the Golden Globes is really amazing. And she kind of says, imagine how, like, imagine what it's like for me. I'm a very powerful woman. You're a very powerful woman. You've experienced this. Imagine what it's like if you are a housekeeper, if you're working in a shop. And it was a very, very rare moment, basically, where that kind of glitzy, shiny, you know, red carpet feminist movement actually did recognise some issues of class. And, you know, I am not part of the Oprah for President movement here in any way, shape or form, but again, it was just a little chink of someone going, these issues look very, very different if you're at the other end of the income spectrum, and I thought that was well. Said the individualised neoliberal woman. No, no, no. The Oprah Winfrey moment was I'm... not the right... No. <laughs> Um, just following up on the question with regards to the NHS, it's something that I find very interesting and I'd love to do some work um, thinking about and sort of exploring why it is that there is this less, so much less of an understanding about social care than, in, than there is about health care and, and sort of the need for it. I guess my optimistic take is that um, a lot of these issues come to the fore when they become more universal. Everyone uses the health service, particularly you know, uh, women with children, um, um, people, children as they grow older have experience of the health service as I think more people have experience with the need for social care particularly with, with the expansion more people, um, larger elderly populations more people with dementia more people with m multiple morbidities more, multiple disability I think this will become more universal and we, we will be forced to have greater understanding of the needs and, and sort of a greater willingness to address a lot of the needs of people with, with, um, in, in relation to, to social care um, there was another point, but um, I'm just struggling at the moment to recall. So. That's quite all right. <laughs> <laughs> that has brought you, uh, that has brought us and uh, almost to quarter past three when we, I'm afraid, have to stop. Can I thank Lisa, Sarek and Kate very much for coming this afternoon. Thank you too for the great questions and for being here. And um, we very much hope you'll take something away and that you've enjoyed this discussion. Thank you. Thank you.